Hi there. Welcome to Bond Investment Mentor. I'm your host, Chris Nelson, and this is a podcast dedicated to helping community financial institutions master the art of fixed income investments. If you're working for a community bank or credit union and you have responsibilities for the investment portfolio, you've come to the right place. I'll be your personal investment guide as we help you boost your fixed income investment knowledge, level up your portfolio management skills, and help you gain the know-how you need to help your institution achieve its financial goals. In this episode, I'm going to share five tips about what to do when you're not actively investing. Investment activity for community financial institutions has slowed over the past year or so, but there are still things you can do to help yourself as a portfolio manager and help your institution in the process. So if you're all set, let's settle in, get ready, and let's get started. Welcome to Bond Investment Mentor. I hope that you're doing well. If this is your first time checking out the podcast, thanks for listening. I hope that you find the information we cover here to be helpful. And if you've returned for another serving of investment and portfolio management info, welcome back. As I mentioned in the open, most community bankers have pretty much been on hiatus when it comes to investment activity in their institution's portfolio. It's certainly understandable when you consider how conditions have changed over the past year or so as far as interest rates, loan growth, liquidity management, management, and general balance sheet changes go. But that doesn't mean you can ignore the investment portfolio, though there may be some community bankers that would like to do so. A slow investing period is a good time to consider other activities, and I'm going to share five tips on things that you can do when you're not investing. In addition, I'll review where the bond market ended as we wound down the second quarter. We'll pause to recognize the passing of a major financial benchmark. And I'll answer a question about a unique type of call structure that you might come across. So we've reached the end of the second quarter. So we'll take a breather here. And volatility was definitely, again, the name of the game. After seeing Treasury yields rally in the wake of the failures of Silicon Valley and Signature and First Republic banks, we saw interest rates move higher again as contagion fears were reduced and the market began pricing in the Fed's outlook of, quote, higher for longer. We also had a little bumpiness on the very short end of the yield curve as the debt ceiling situation played out. And of course, the inverted yield curve is alive and well. As I'm recording this after the bond market close on Friday, the two-year Treasury yield is at 4.9%, an increase of 87 basis points during the quarter. The five-year Treasury was yielding 4.16%, up almost 60 basis points during Q2, while the 10-year Treasury ended the quarter at 3.84%, which was about 40 basis points higher compared to the end of March. Of course, higher yields mean lower bond prices, so community bankers had to weather another quarter of increasing unrealized losses in the investment portfolio. As I look back at where yields were at the beginning of the year, longer-term bond yields from seven years out are relatively unchanged at this point this year, so that hasn't created any additional pain for portfolios. Where the pressure built was on the short end of the yield curve, with yields up anywhere from 50 to 75 basis points since January 1st. After recovering a bit earlier in the year, the Treasury curve's slope inversion deepened again, 
The difference between two-year and 10-year treasuries, otherwise known as the twos-tens metric, closed out Q2 at minus 106 basis points, which was the deepest inversion since just before the bank failures back in March. The other common slope measure, which measures the difference between three-month and 10-year treasuries, ended the quarter about 150 basis points in the red. This remains the deepest inversion we've seen in the treasury curve in about 43 years, which happened to be the last time the Federal Reserve was battling inflation issues. One piece of good news, if you want to call it that, was that we saw the Federal Open Market Committee raise interest rates by only 25 basis points during the quarter. The question now is how long will the Fed's pause be on further tightening? Right now, the markets are expecting the Fed to make a move again at the next FOMC meeting in late July. Looking at the Fed Fund's futures market at the close, the markets are pricing in about an 80% chance of a quarter-point rate hike in July. But that's as far as it goes, with minimal expectations for additional hikes this year, followed by potential rate cuts sometime in the first half of 2024. So those have been pushed out a little bit. Now, this outlook still differs from that of Fed Chair Jerome Powell, who in comments this week said that more needs to be done to bring inflation levels down. Based on his comments, I'm wondering if we're entering a period where the Fed hikes and then skips at a meeting and then hikes again and so on. What's important to note is this scenario is not yet priced into the market, so it's possible that the volatility we've seen in the past few months could continue. June 30th also marked the end of a key capital markets benchmark. After more than 50 years, the U.S. LIBOR rate is officially no more. The last of the LIBOR benchmark interest rates were published on Friday morning. LIBOR rates were first introduced in 1969 and became a benchmark in the mid-1980s. Eventually, the collection of rates representing what banks would charge each other grew to cover multiple terms and five currencies. But the rate-rigging scandal that broke out in 2008 pretty much tainted LIBOR's reputation, and the decision was made in 2014 to end the use of the indices. However, winding down LIBOR took a while because of how widespread the benchmark was used, including in interest rate swaps and residential mortgages, student loans, and collateralized loan obligations. Most of the non-dollar LIBOR indices wrapped up in 2021, but it took a few more years for the dollar-based ones to finish up, which is what happened on Friday. Those of us in banking and investments have been working through the LIBOR transition for a number of years now, and at this point, the shift to the treasury-based SOFR rate and other supplemental indices like Bisbee is complete. As someone that worked with LIBOR for many years, I have to say it still seems strange that what was once one of the benchmarks is gone. But gone it is, just another part of the history books now. I received an investment question recently about a bond call structure that is a little different from the usual offering, and I wanted to share this with you. Dan, who is a community banker in Pennsylvania, wanted to know more about something called a make-whole call. If you're involved with your institution's investment portfolio, you're likely well acquainted with callable bonds. Typically, they are securities containing an embedded call option that gives the issuer the right to redeem the bond before its maturity date, and they pay the principal back early to the investor. But if you invest in municipal or corporate bonds, you may also have come across bonds with a make-whole call. 
They're similar to a regular call structure in that the make-whole call allows the issuer to redeem the bond before maturity. But unlike a standard call that only repays the investor's principal amount, a make-whole call compensates them for the present value of all expected future cash flows, including both principal and interest payments. The idea behind a make-whole call is that the investor is fully compensated or made whole when a bond is redeemed ahead of its scheduled maturity date. Here's how a make-whole call works. When a make-whole call is exercised, the issuer calculates the present value of the bond's remaining cash flows, principal and interest, typically using a predefined discount or market-based rate formula. The issuer then pays the greater of this amount or the bond's par value to the investor. One other difference between a make-whole call and a standard call structure is when the call can be exercised. With a standard call structure, the bond can only be called after a specific date, which is otherwise known as the lockout period. However, a make-whole call can be exercised anytime during the bond's lifetime after the bond is issued. Generally, a bond featuring a make-whole call provision can be advantageous for investors as they tend to receive compensation greater than the par amount when the call is exercised. This becomes especially beneficial when interest rates are falling, as it provides a little additional offset against the lower reinvestment rate on whatever replacement bond is being used. However, it's worth noting that while issuers may incorporate a make-whole provision in a bond, History shows that make-whole calls are rarely exercised because of the higher compensation cost for the issuer. Because of that, an investor has to consider the possibility that the bond won't be called and instead will be held to maturity. In addition, the yield on a bond with a make-whole call is usually slightly lower than other call structures because of that make-whole benefit. As I said before, make-whole calls aren't as prevalent as a standard call structure. Where you'll most likely run into them is with corporate issues and the occasional municipal bond. But it's good to be aware of them and understand how they work because they may present an interesting investment opportunity. So Dan, thanks for your question. And if you have a question about fixed income investing or portfolio management that you'd like me to answer, you can email me at chris at bondinvestmentmentor.com and I will do what I can to help you out. Okay, let's move on to our main topic for today. If you're like most community bankers, I imagine that you're not doing a lot of investing right now. After spending the past few years putting excess funds to work in the investment portfolio, the pendulum has swung the other way. For some, cash is now dried up, so investing becomes a lower priority. Others are still feeling a little shell-shocked and hesitant to consider investments after the wild ride of the last year or so. And there are always other things to do in the day job at the community bank or credit union to keep us occupied, right? But just because you may not be investing doesn't mean you can ignore the investment portfolio. In fact, quiet times on the investment front are the perfect time for other activities. They might not have the urgency of needing to put funds to work in the investment portfolio, but they're important nonetheless. Today, I'm going to share with you five tips on things you can do for the investment portfolio when you're not investing. Some of these suggestions may be quick or periodic to-dos, while others are tasks that might take some time but can be squeezed in around other parts of the day job. Tip number one is to regularly monitor the existing investments in the portfolio. I know that sounds pretty straightforward. 
But I'm not just talking about how much your unrealized loss position or portfolio duration has changed. Don't get me wrong, those are important, but there are other things to review and keep an eye on. For example, it may be worthwhile to periodically check the underlying option risk of the positions in the portfolio. Have any callable bond situations changed? If you have callable securities that are out of the money and not callable right now, do you know how much interest rates would have to change for them to become callable again? While many bonds will remain uncallable even with major shifts in the yield curve, I have seen examples recently as I've reviewed investment portfolios where a shift of 100 to 150 basis points was enough to bring the call option back into play. It can be helpful to know how changes in interest rates will affect your investment's behavior. Another place where it's worth digging a little into the optionality exposure is with residential mortgage securities. While they don't have calls like bonds do, they do have embedded optionality that creates the prepayment and extension risks that we've all grown way too familiar with in the past few years. Something that can be helpful is monitoring how monthly prepayment speeds are changing for the pools that you hold. Even in the higher rate environment, you can still see changes in prepayment speeds for reasons tied to credit-related events or because of the underlying loan collateral characteristics. If you find that you have an NBS that is behaving differently than the other holdings, it may be worth a little digging to understand why it's happening. Now, this type of monitoring might sound like a heavy lift, but it's very doable with some help. Your broker or someone with access to a Bloomberg should be able to help pull the data together. And once you've established what you're looking for, then it's just a matter of updating the information as needed. Something else worth monitoring is changes in the credit quality of any non-government agency-backed investments that you hold. Whether you hold muni or corporate bonds, private label mortgage securities or CMOs, collateralized loan obligations or bank sub-debt, it's worth giving them a checkup. I know that you're likely doing some of this already as part of your required post-purchase due diligence, but these days it's worth taking the time to check, especially when it's quiet on the investment activity front. Tip number two is to take time to explore different security types that you might not be as familiar with. Most community financial institutions are regular investors in treasury and agency bonds, mortgage-backed securities, and municipal issues. But there are other types of fixed income investments that could offer opportunities for your institution's investment portfolio without stretching way out of your comfort zone. The problem is that we rarely have the time when we're busy investing to learn about them and how they work. One thing that I'm planning to do in future episodes here is to provide an overview of some of these investments to give you an introduction to them. I previously covered residential mortgage-backed securities and CMOs way back in episodes 5, 6, and 7. And right now, I'm working on future episodes about municipal bonds, uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities, SBA securities, and variable rate securities. If you have a suggestion for an investment type that I didn't mention just now, please send me an email or message. Let me know, and I'll put it on the list. Tip number three for when you're not actively investing is to review your investment policy. The investment policy is one of the main guides to how a community banker manages the investment portfolio. But really, how well do you know what the policy contains? This is a good time to go through the policy 
and determine if it still aligns with your institution's portfolio objectives, risk tolerance, and regulatory requirements. In addition, you'll want to consider if there is anything in the policy language that needs to be added, removed, changed, or clarified. The goal here is to have an investment policy that is robust enough to make sure the investment process stays on track without being so cumbersome that managing the portfolio becomes challenging or maybe almost impossible to do so effectively. All right, let's move on to tip number four, and that is to review your investment strategy or develop one if you don't have one. I covered this topic in detail back in episode 27, but I'm mentioning it here because a great time to work on your investment strategy is when you're not as active in managing the portfolio. An investment strategy that's customized to your institution's needs, risks, objectives, and comfort zone gives you a roadmap to help you navigate the markets, communicate more effectively with your brokers, and share what's happening in the investment portfolio and why with management, ALCO, the board, and regulators. Having a solid investment strategy in place is the most important tool you can have to be a successful portfolio manager, and it's one of the reasons I began offering live training workshops for community bankers to help them create an investment strategy. I don't have a workshop coming up right away, but you can go over to bondinvestmentmentor.com forward slash strategy to learn more and see when the next session might be coming up. And that brings us to tip number five, which is to stay informed and educated. Even if you're not investing, it's important to stay on top of what's happening. It also allows you to jump on any occasional opportunities that might come along. When I was managing my bank's portfolio, some of my biggest finds as far as great investments happened when I wasn't actively investing, but I stayed in the loop. It allowed me to pick up some interesting bonds that I would have missed if I wasn't paying attention. Now, that doesn't mean you need to be checking things as frequently as you might when you're actively investing. But speaking from experience, I'd caution you against totally ignoring the markets either. If you've cultivated good relationships with your brokers and they understand the kinds of investments that interest you, they may give you a heads up once in a while if an opportunity presents itself. Being less active in investing also gives you time to build your knowledge base and professional skills. There are a lot of good resources available and you can pick what works best for you. Whether it's self-study courses, online webinars, podcasts, conferences, schools, or other professional training, devoting some of your time to boosting your investment skills and becoming a better portfolio manager is a smart move that helps you and your community financial institution. So there you go. Five tips on what to do when you're not investing. To recap, they are number one, regularly monitor existing investments. Number two, explore and consider new and different security types. Number three, review your institution's investment policy. Number four, review or develop your investment strategy. And number five, stay informed and educated. As I mentioned earlier, these are things you can work in around the other things you need to do. I'm not looking to load up your to-do list, that's for sure. But it's crucial to recognize that even during periods of limited investing, you don't want to ignore the investment portfolio and your role as a portfolio manager. If you're looking for ways to strengthen your investment skills, let me tell you about a couple of options that can help. First, 
If you or a member of your team is either newer to their role and needs an introduction to investment fundamentals or is about to become more directly involved with managing the investment portfolio, it's time to get up to speed on the basics. Check out the Bond Basics online course where you'll learn the fundamentals of fixed income investing and portfolio management for community financial institutions. It's a great way to ensure the foundational concepts are in place and you can learn more about it by heading over to bondinvestmentmentor.com forward slash bond basics. And if you're a bank executive interested in more of a tailored and personalized professional development program that's designed especially for community bankers, my one-on-one mentoring might be just the ticket. With mentoring, we work together to help you build your professional skills based on your specific needs and objectives. I've worked with clients in a wide range of areas, including investments, asset liability management, loan and deposit rate setting strategies, finance and treasury management, leadership, communications, and many other critical skills. To learn more about and apply for one-on-one mentoring, head over to bondinvestmentmentor.com forward slash mentoring. As I said earlier, investing some of your time to improve your professional skills is something that will pay off for you and your institution. And that's a great win-win. I hope that you found today's information helpful. And if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out. We've been in one of those situations where it's important to bring every resource available to the table, which is why I'm here for you. If you think that someone else would benefit from what we covered today, please feel free to pass it along. I'm glad you stopped by and thanks so much for checking in. Bond Investment Mentor is written and produced by me, Chris Nelson, and the information, views, and opinions expressed during the podcast belong solely to myself. Any ideas and strategies contained within the podcast are for educational and informational purposes only and do not constitute investment, accounting, or legal advice. As I said, if you have a question regarding anything in today's episode, please email me at chris at bondinvestmentmentor.com. If you like what you've heard today and you haven't done so already, I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. And if you're listening via Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please consider leaving a rating or review. It helps others discover and learn more about the podcast. If you're looking for more information about fixed income investing and portfolio management, you'll want to head over to bondinvestmentmentor.com and you'll find articles, tips, and resources there to help you manage your institution's investment portfolio. And hey, you can also find me and follow me on the socials. I'm on LinkedIn at Christopher Nelson CFA and on Facebook at Bond Investment Mentor. Would love to hear from you. I look forward to catching up with you again real soon. Thanks for stopping by. Have a good one.